Well, our scripture reading um, this morning is continuing as we're, we're finishing up our series on the book of Proverbs over the next couple of weeks. And so we have a series of readings um, from the book of Proverbs. And, uh, you know, just this is a PG-13 reading, just, 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 just so you're aware. It contains portions. <laughs> Listen now to God's word. Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? Trouble pursues the sinner, but the righteous are rewarded with good things. A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. A prudent servant will rule over a disgraceful son and will share the inheritance as one of the family. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. If someone curses their father or mother, their lamp will be snuffed out in pitch darkness. Start off children in the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. Listen to your father who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Wisdom, instruction, and insight as well. The father of a righteous child has a great joy. A man who fathers a wise son rejoices in him. May your father and mother rejoice. May she who gave you birth be joyful. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Go figure that on, on the Sunday when we have the most kids here and we don't send kids to kids' ministry, that we get the PG-13 scripture passage. <laughs> my apologies. Uh, I'll do my best to try to keep my, my teaching on it PG-rated, um, but just a heads up. So uh, like Dave mentioned, we are winding down our summer sermon series on the book of Proverbs that we called Live Wisely. And and on this Sunday where, you know, we, we just baptized Harrison and we're celebrating, you know, the gift of, of family and we see all these children and, uh, you know, we, we talk about covenant and all of those things. It seems fitting that we spend our time in Proverbs this morning looking at the wisdom it offers for family relationships. And while I, I recognize that not every aspect might apply directly to you today, I mean, I, I recognize that in our crowd we have some who are married, others who are single, some who are parents, some who don't have kids. The, the truth is, nonetheless, we all fit one of the audiences, at least, that Proverbs speak to, because all of us are, are at least children of someone. And so even adult children, the, the wisdom of Proverbs still has something to say to you. And so let's dig in and, and see what Proverbs has to say about family. And we're going to start, actually, on the parent-child side of things before we move on to, to the marriage uh, relationship. And parents, we're going to start with you because you set the tone here. Uh, that's what you need to hear. This might come as no surprise, uh, but Proverbs' chief concern for you as a parent is that you instill wisdom in your children. That is your job 
primarily. It's not first and foremost the church's job primarily or the school's job primarily. They're, they're partners with you in that work. But parents, that, that responsibility is primarily yours. God has placed you as the primary human influence in your child's life meaning that much of their wisdom is going to be gleaned from you for better or for worse. And so you have to make it a priority. And I know that might sound a little basic, but, but let's think of all the other things that, that we can seem to value more for our children than wisdom. I mean, sports, their schooling, their, their entertainment, their happiness. The list could go on and on, and none of those things are bad in and of themselves, it's just that it can be so easy to take something that's good and make it the ultimate thing. To elevate the good and make it the best, and that's when it becomes foolishness. That's when we miss out on the treasure that wisdom holds out for us. It, it's about the priorities we set. And so parents, we do have our work cut out for us. I acknowledge that. And so how do we do it? Well, first, Proverbs indicates that we as parents need to be pursuing wisdom for ourselves. We can't pass along what we don't have, right? I mean, it's kind of like the, you know, the airplane oxygen mask analogy. If you've got to put the oxygen mask on your first, yourself first and then help out your kids, and it's the same with wisdom. It's not selfish to first pursue wisdom for yourself because otherwise you're more likely to pass along folly to your children. Uh, Proverbs 13 says, The righteous are rewarded with good things, and a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's Children, and this verse isn't just talking about wealth and, and resources. Certainly living wisely can have material implications, but, but the main idea here is that the good we experience in our lives by pursuing godly wisdom will undoubtedly spill over into the lives of our children and be passed on to future generations. Wisdom has a ripple effect like that, as does folly. And I know we've talked at great length in this series on how to pursue wisdom in different arenas of our life. But I just want to offer one quick note here. You don't need to be the wisest person in the room. You don't need to be Solomon to instill wisdom to your children. I mean, undoubtedly, you will get it wrong sometimes. You will. We all do. We are all fools from time to time. So take the pressure off of yourself to get it right all the time. That's what grace is for. There is grace for that reason. And we have to remember that God's spirit is always at work in the lives of our children. But the main thing here is that if you have instilled in your children the value of pursuing wisdom, then as they grow older, they can leverage that wisdom to distill the wisdom from what you've passed on to them and also perhaps to sift out any folly you might have passed along to them as well. I mean, after all, how many of us now in adulthood can maybe recognize and appreciate some of the wisdom that, that our parents passed along to us and how they raised us, what they taught us. I mean, I, I remember as a kid not always appreciating some of the boundaries that my parents set for me, you know, whether it be curfews or, or classmates that they maybe encouraged me not to hang around that much or, or activities they urged me to avoid. But, but now being a parent myself, I, I can look back and, and really appreciate my parents' wisdom and, and how it undoubtedly has spared me from some regret in life and, and folly. And that leads to the second aspect of, of parenting wisely. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it away. Now, I, I think we can maybe hear that verse, hear that talk of the rod of discipline, and, and think that it's primarily advocating for corporal punishment. 
You know, like if your kiss, kid misbehaves, grab the bell, grab the switch, something like that. But that's, that's not necessarily really the case of, of Proverbs' main point here. Rather, the word that's used here for discipline means teaching or, or coaching, instructing. And, and the rod in Scripture is this image, this symbol of authority. And so in other words, you as the parent have been tasked with God with the authority to coach, to teach, to instruct your children to redirect them and discipline them as necessary. Because as Proverbs note, folly tends to just be our, whole, our heart's default setting. I mean, it's just true in this broken world that folly is our default. And we see this in children, but, but we also see it in adults. And, and oftentimes that's correlated because childhood folly, if it's not addressed, is likely to continue on into adulthood. And so parents, you have the responsibility to coach your children to see and identify foolishness, to correct those patterns, and to see and pursue a wise course of action instead. And there's just one other aspect of wise parenting that I want to touch on this morning, and that's from Proverbs 22.6, perhaps the most famous verse that, that Dave read, and in its most common translation, says, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they will not turn from it. Now, there, there are differing perspectives on what exactly that verse is getting at, uh, but one perspective uh, that was shared by, by many biblical scholars, and I noticed Tim Keller uh, espoused this perspective in his sermon on this passage, is that this verse is really an encouragement for parents to discern the uniqueness of how God has created their individual children and wisely guide them along a path that will move them towards becoming more fully who God uniquely created them to be, that the way they should go is unique for each child. And, and if you're a parent of more than one kid, you probably already see the wisdom in this. For example, uh, once our second child, Jonah, uh, entered the scene, it quickly became clear that he was a very different kid from Jordan, our firstborn. I mean, same gene pool, same home environment, same parenting, but very different personality and temperament very different passions and skills. I mean, we've recognized that, like, whereas Jordan's wired to be incredibly competitive and, and he has this strong desire to succeed by whatever kind of the stated measures of success are, Jonah cares less about those things and, and, and rather is, is wired to be incredibly creative, to bring into being things that, that start as ideas in his mind. And both kids reflect God's image in amazing ways, in unique ways, and as their parents, training them in the way they should go has looked different for each and every one of them. I mean, part of the wisdom that Sally and I pray for regularly is learning how to parent each of our three kids in a way that imparts wisdom, but also sets boundaries that will guide them uniquely on the path towards becoming the people that God has created them to be. All right, so let's shift now from, from parents to to children and their relationship to parents. What wisdom does proverb have, Proverbs have to offer us here? And again, I, I want to be clear that this applies both to the school-age children who are here this morning, but also to those of us as adult children who still have our parents alive and with us. The, the main thing that comes up over and over again, both in Proverbs specifically, but, but in Scripture as a whole, is the importance of honoring our parents. In fact, you'd actually notice if you, if you went through Scripture that rarely does Scripture command children to love their parents, although I, I'm sure it assumes that, but it really places its focus and emphasis on honoring 
our parents. In fact, it, it, that is so important that honoring our parents made the Ten Commandments. And it's actually the only commandment that has a blessing attached to it, where it says, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. It's the primary way we love our parents is by honoring them. It's vitally important to God. And the implication is, again, that it is our primary way of expressing our love for them. So how do we do that? How do we honor our parents? Well, first, according to Proverbs 3, we accept the discipline that they offer, the, the guidance, the correction that our parents offer us, recognizing that discipline or correction from wise and godly parents is an expression of their love for us. Proverbs 3.12 says, The Lord disciplines those he loves just as a father disciplines the child he delights in. Sally and I, I try to remind our kids of this. When we say no to a particular request of theirs or when we set a limit or when we push pause on whatever is going on in the moment to correct a behavior or an attitude, it's not because we want to be controlling or we want to ruin their fun or make them feel ashamed for something. Rather, it's because we love them with every fiber of our being. And so we want to help them root out destructive attitudes and patterns of behavior while they're still young and while the consequences are still relatively minor. We want to do our best to direct them on a path towards wisdom and flourishing. Also, children, recognize that Proverbs encourages us to intentionally seek out the wisdom that our parents have to offer. Proverbs 23, 23 says, Buy the truth and do not sell it. Buy it. Don't sell it. Wisdom, instruction, and insight as well. It's worth recognizing that given all of the wisdom that accumulates over a lifetime of experiences, your parents have so much to offer you. Why foolishly try to figure it all on your own when you have people in your life, people who are cheering for you, people who have committed themselves and sacrificed themselves specifically for your well-being, your parents who have wisdom they'd gladly impart to you, if only you ask them for it. And again, this isn't just true when we're young. I mean, just the other day, I called my dad as I faced a difficult decision to ask him how he navigated a similar situation in his life. And, you know, there, there have been strains in my relationship with my dad over the years, but I recognize that doesn't negate the fact that my dad still possesses a great deal of wisdom that he still loves me dearly and, and wants the best for me. And so seeking his wisdom was both a tangible way that I could honor him, but also grow in my own wisdom. So seek it out. And finally, just note how, how a relationship of honor between children and their parents is referenced several different times as being a source of delight. And kids, it's true. Jordan, Jonah, and Isla, it's true. When you honor your parents and heed the wisdom they have to offer, we all rejoice. We all delight because we as parents really do love you and want the best for you. And when you receive instruction and correction, trusting that, that we want the best for you and we're not just trying to control you, that kind of wisdom sets us up for a brighter future with less bumps in the road. It's the wisdom Proverbs offers us. Okay, so we've given a good hard look at Proverbs wisdom for parents and children, but let's Turn now towards the wisdom that's necessary in marriage. And you know, I'm not going to lie, back when I was a teenager, passages like the ones Dave read earlier about being satisfied uh, by your wife always kind of got my ears to perk up and caused me to pay a little more attention to a sermon. There's you know, shades of Song of Solomon and what was read. And, and as a teenager, I was always down for that. But uh, I digress. Here's the deal. 
Proverbs offers us vital wisdom about protecting and cherishing the marriage relationship. And so let's start with just perhaps the most obvious thing in those passages. Proverbs warns strongly against seeking satisfaction or sexual fulfillment from someone other than our spouse. It urges that we beware of the adulterous woman. And just a quick note there, as, as we work through this portion, note that you know, virtually everything that's written there is meant to go both ways. Uh, it's not just for the husbands. It's not gender-specific in that way. Wives need to be aware of seductive men just as much as husbands of seductive women. And likewise, wives should seek to rejoice in the husbands of their youth and be t- intoxicated with his love. And so even though it's written from a male perspective, which is common for a patriarchal context like that, it's wisdom that's intended for both marriage partners. Back to the issue at hand. Proverbs is not naive. It recognizes that there will be temptations to stray from being faithful to the one you've committed yourself to in marriage. There will be times when your marriage might be less than satisfying. And the one option, Proverbs says, should never be on the table is to seek elsewhere the satisfaction which is meant to come from your spouse alone. And it's worth noting that Proverbs isn't saying not to do that just because it's a sin, like some arbitrary, you know, rule that God has set up, but rather it's arguing against adultery because it will always lead to destructive consequences. Being unfaithful is the road to folly. It's a path that does not lead to life. The Proverbs doesn't just give us negative advice saying don't do it. It also provides a positive aim for marriage. And it's advice is that we must work at cultivating a strong love for our spouse. A love so strong that an outside observer might be tempted to say that we are intoxicated by him and her. That is the word that's used there, is intoxicated by their love. And Proverbs seem to recognize this will take effort, it will take commitment. It doesn't just happen by itself, which I think can sometimes go against the way our culture often teaches us about how love should work, that If it's really love, we'll feel it, we'll have those positive feelings, it should come easy, come naturally, that if it's becoming a a challenge to love our spouse, or if the attraction is waning, or if the connection is strained, or if you've just lost that love and feeling, then, then perhaps it's a sign that your marriage needs to end. And Proverbs recognizes that pull but it's quick to label it as foolishness. And and in in a blink and you'll miss it moment, Proverbs anchors the source of strength in your marriage in a single word, covenant. Covenant. Verse 17 of chapter 2 talks about the adulterous wayward woman as ignoring the covenant she made before God. And, and what we might not know is that this is quite possibly the first time and one of the only times in all of Scripture that marriage is actually talked about explicitly as being a covenant relationship. And virtually every instance of covenant making in Scripture up to this point and most often after this point is between God and his people. God is a covenant making God. God pledges himself to be faithful to Israel. And he asks the same of them towards him. Covenant in Scripture is all about committing oneself for the sake and well-being of the other. It's not a contract. It's very different. When God committed and covenanted himself to Israel, he was committing to work on their behalf out of his unmerited, unconditional love for them, which is why even when we see Israel behave as an unfaithful covenant partner, God remains faithful to them. That's how covenant works, and it's what makes it different from a contract, which kind of only holds so long as both parties hold up to their end of the bargain. 
And that view of marriage as covenant relationship remains to this day. But you got to understand that back then that wasn't the norm uh, in those days. And and we see this, you know, in many accounts in the Old Testament that marriage was often a very transactional sort of thing. The, The idea of romantic love or attraction forming the basis for a marriage was certainly not the norm or the standard practice. Rather, marriages were primarily a means by which people secured their social status, the way they continued on their family line by having children, which is, which is why, for example, it's such a catastrophic thing in the Old Testament when women couldn't bear children, and, and sons in particular, because so much of the value of a wife in a patriarchal society like that was her ability to produce children, and specifically sons, because the family line ran through the male children. And yet here, Proverbs tells us that marriage is so much more than that. And, and, and this view of marriage as a covenant and not a contract sticks with us to this day. I mean, think of the vows that are made in virtually every wedding ceremony today. It's not contract language. I mean, in, in, in our wedding, I didn't make the vow, I, Matt, take you, Sally, to be my wife, to love and to cherish you for as long as you do the same for me. That's not how it works. And wedding vows don't typically anchor the commitment in our present experience or feelings of love either. I I didn't say, I'm marrying you, Sally, because I really love you today. Rather, my vows were a commitment to future love and future faithfulness. They were promises of a future behavior towards her. I was saying, I marry you, Sally, because I want to love you for better or for worse, in sickness or in health, whatever life throws at us. And that's what I'm committing myself to. That is covenant. And Proverbs reminds us that's at the heart of marriage, where you're committing yourself not simply to the person that you're in love with today. Rather, you're committing to be the person who will give love to this person for the rest of your life, despite how circumstances or feelings may shift and change. And that passage also reminds us that there is a a third party involved in the marriage covenant. It's a commitment that we also make before God in God's presence. God cares deeply about the human flourishing that comes within the setting of a faithful and loving marriage. And so any promise that's made in God's presence is never to be taken lightly. Uh, But what else? Uh, Well, again, counter to to much of the cultural expectations of its days, Proverbs never sees marriage as something, or Proverbs sees marriage as something that is also meant to be personally fulfilling and satisfying. I mean, again, uh, you know, that wasn't always the norm in marriages that day, but, but contrary to, I think, what a lot of people believe about Scripture, uh, it's actually very sex-affirming, sex-positive. Proverbs is quite explicit here that God wants you to experience sexual fulfillment in life. It's just that that sexual fulfillment has a divinely designed context, and that's within marriage. Again, keeping that flame alive, it will take work, it will take effort, and it must be anchored in the covenant promises you've made to your spouse. Staying faithful, choosing to love your spouse despite the hardships can be done, and wisdom says it must be done. If we can stay committed and work our way through those seasons, through those stretches, where we make the conscious choice to rejoice in the wife or the husband of our youth, where we make the choice to find ways to delight in our spouse, to work at cultivating a satisfying relationship with our spouse, we will find what is truly good in the words of Proverbs 18.22. Now, as I wind down this morning, it's important to note that, that much of the imagery that we see here in Proverbs points beyond marriage as well. In fact, often in Scripture, 
Sexual imagery has multiple layers. Yes, it points to human relationships, but it often points beyond them to our relationship with God as well. In my study this past week, one commentary noted that metaphors for sexuality have human and divine registers that are inseparable. In other words, language and imagery like that often points in some way beyond just our human relationships to our relationships with God. Uh, It reminds me of a a quote from Bono, the lead singer of U2, which happens to be my favorite band. Uh, And he was asked about the meaning of their song, Mysterious Ways. And and he commented that many of their songs are often about God and women, and we often confuse the two. Uh, Now, I'm not saying here that Scripture confuses the two. It does not. But what I am saying is that throughout Scripture, the love and satisfaction found in that kind of marriage relationship serves as a pointer to the love and satisfaction we are meant to find in a far greater way in our relationship with God. And the intimacy that we desire with our spouse points beyond them to Christ and the intimacy we were created to have with him. And in the same way, the love that we receive from our spouse points beyond them to the unmerited love that we receive from Christ. Uh, I'll never forget a helpful framing of marriage that one of my dearest friends gave me. Uh, he was in a season where his marriage was really hard and nothing was seeming to click, and, and he and his wife were just misfiring at every turn. And I asked him how, how he persevered, what kept him in, in such an incredibly hopeful uh, attitude and demeanor, uh, at least as it appeared to me. And he told me this. He said, I've learned that loving my wife is the most tangible way I can express my love for Jesus. Loving my wife is the most tangible way I can express my love for Jesus because when we choose to love someone else selflessly, even when it's costly, even when, it's, even when we're facing the annoyances and, and the, the ins and outs that come with a lifelong relationship, when we can love in that way, it connects us to the heart of God like nothing else can. There is power in that kind of Jesus-looking love. There is power in that commitment to journey through life with the other person, not simply out of your own desire to have them fulfill your every need, but rather from your covenant commitment to them, to give your very best for them, to see them flourish and become all that God created them to be. Tim Keller put it this way, marriage is gospel reenactment. In in scripture, God is always the faithful spouse, staying true to his covenant vows despite our wayward ways, laying down his life for our sake. And that kind of love can only serve to deepen and strengthen any family. And so sisters and brothers, no matter what family titles you might bear today, be it husband, wife, parent, child, I pray that we would embrace the wisdom Proverbs offers us. May we, at the center of our family, choose to honor one another. May we seek the flourishing of one another. May we cultivate a satisfaction with one another that can't be found anywhere else. And in covenant love, may we lay down our life for one another, just as God in Christ has done out of his covenant love for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please pray with me.